0: Turn over to uh, Matthew 5, and uh, we're just beginning the uh, Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we kind of setting the stage for this wonderful sermon, probably the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And um, we talked a little bit about the context of where we're going to be going in the next couple weeks um, or months even into the, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and how that will relate to us And we talked about the the biblical context, first of all, just a way of review, that this is no accident that God starts off the New Testament, the book of Matthew, um, with this first sermon. Um, We came out of the Old Testament last week. We looked at the last words in the book of Malachi were basically curse. And the first words from the... uh, The Lord in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, speak of being blessed. And we talked about uh, what a different perspective that is. One ends with cursing, the other one begins with blessing. And we talked about because there's a new character involved. There's a transformation that takes place. And uh, that word blessed, in the original language, makarios, really means to be happy or blissful, uh, content. And uh, we talked about how the blessed are like God, and that God Himself is blessed. God is content within Himself. God is happy within Himself. He doesn't have to look outside Himself for some kind of blessing. He is blessed because of who He is. And we also looked at that the blessed are like Christ. Christ Himself is blessed, and God's people are blessed. And we talked about how if we want the blessing of God, if we want the The the, the joy and the happiness that comes, it has to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And uh, we we looked a little bit about this transformation that takes place from sin to life in Christ and forgiveness. And and turn over to uh, Romans chapter 5. And I just want to read a couple verses out of here. Romans chapter 5. And that was the context of the, the Sermon on the Mount, this transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between cursing and blessing. And then we looked at the political context. There really wasn't a lot of political context in this uh, sermon. There's not a political word in it, really. And we also looked at the religious context, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And we looked at each group and we kind of understood what each one was about. The Pharisees believed that this blessedness or this happiness could be found by um, conforming to tradition. And uh, they always pointed back to the law. And the Sadducees thought that happiness was found in modernism and uh, liberalism. And the Essenes really advocated happiness through the separation from the world. They were the group that said, oh no, we've got to go up here in this monastery and live all by ourselves and then we'll find true happiness away from anything that's sinful. And the Zealots believed that happiness could only be found when they overthrew Rome. And they were involved in the political overthrow. That's what they wanted. And that's what they thought would bring true happiness. Well, all of them were wrong. And when Jesus came on the scene, that's what He shared with them. But as we... In observance of communion today, it's important for us to understand that as we look at this context of the Sermon of the Mount, that this transition has taken place from the Old Testament to the New Testament. in, Matthew, or in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Paul kind of begins to share with us what the difference is here. He says, "Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, Adam, and sin through, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because what?" all have sinned everybody has sinned there's not one person in this room that has never ever sinned that has spiritual perfection verse 13 for until the law sin was in the world but the sin is not but sin is not imputed when there is no law nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of Of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, a type of Christ, who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift, speaking of salvation, is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense sin reigned through the one, much more those who received who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, through Adam everybody was condemned, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteousness, that Jesus Christ, act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, and look at this, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on there in verse 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, are we to use the grace of God as an excuse to go sin? All my sins are forgiven, so I'm going to just go live it up in the world? Certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? Speaking of the the literal baptism into the body of Christ. Not water baptism. Verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness. Of life. For we've been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. You say, when will you be free from sin? When you die. The reason we sin is because we're stuck in this body. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that he also, we also shall live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. He only died once. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to, cry to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, don't let, rain, let sin reign in your mortal bodies, in your fleshly bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of Righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. You know, if if we had to sum up the Sermon on the Mount, if we had to stop and say, what what is the summation of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? It's really a comparison of Religion and understanding a relationship with God. See, in our world, we've got this confused. We think that somehow our religion makes us have a relationship with God. But that's not true. And it never will be true. Religion is something that man came up with trying to reach out to a holy God. That's what religion is. That's why I'm not a religious person. When people say, "Oh, you're a pal. You must be religious." No, I'm not. I'm not religious, <laughs> and that is cause for discussion. Well, what do you mean? How can you, you know, be in this ministry and not be religious? Well, it's all about defining what you mean by religion. I define religion as man's attempt to reach out to a holy God. That's why you got so many different religions. All these people trying to do the right thing, trying to somehow appease their their God. And God's looking down and saying, that's not how it works. You could never do enough ever to appease me. And so we're going to find out in the coming weeks as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, it's not about religion, beloved. That's the furthest thing from Jesus' mind. As a matter of fact, if it's on His mind at all, it's on His mind in a negative way. Because He's dealing with some religious people at the time that thought they were better than anybody else because they wore certain clothes and they went to the synagogue and they did all these things. And sometimes, as Christians, we can get caught up into that. We can begin to believe that, yeah, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and I go to church, and I help out, and go to Grace group, Care Group, and do all these things. And boy, God must look down at, from heaven and go, boy, I'm really this is this is good. I love you more than that person because that person is not doing what you're doing. That's not grace. Grace says, you know what? I love you. And I love the things you do. That's great. You're you're blessing my socks off. But you know what? I also love this person over here who's struggling with sin on a daily basis, who maybe is dealing with depression and doubt and and ongoing issues in their life. I love them the same as I love this person if they're both trusting in Christ for their salvation. Because it's not a performance-oriented thing. And when Jesus was teaching, the the society today was very much about performance-oriented things. I mean they would they would reserve certain seats in in the in the uh, the settings of their teachings and certain people would come in and they would oh wash them down or, you can sit here or up near the you know the front and be near the the holy person or whatever they were thinking it was crazy And if you were poor and blind well then they shoved you in the back somewhere why cuz it was all what could that guy do that guy couldn't do anything but this rich person this person who is Pillar of the society. We want him down front because, you know, sometimes we fall into that. And Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he, he basically, as I said last week, as if somebody went in the, the shop window and changed all the price tags. And you're just going, whoa. Really? There's a couple of good reasons for us to study the Sermon on the Mount in the coming weeks. And I think the first reason there in your notes is because it shows you the necessity of a new birth. It shows the importance of having this new birth. It shows the importance of in the Old Testament being ended with a curse and the New Testament uh, beginning with a blessing. Well, why is that? It's because there's some transition, transition that took place. There's some transformation that has happened. The Sermon on the Mount will show us, beloved, that we can never please God on our own. Ever. Never in our flesh. If we're trying to please God in our flesh, the Bible calls that what? Sin. It calls it sin. Dead works. What we do in our flesh is sin to God. You may have the best intentions in the world, but if you're doing it, before God, in order kind of for Him to love you more or, or to somehow earn something from Him, you're doing it with the wrong attitude. The only people who ever know this blessedness that we're going to find out here in the uh, Sermon on the Mount are the people that have been blessed by God Himself with this divine nature that comes through Christ. They know it. They experience it. They've been born again. They're a new person in Christ. The old man is done away. They're new in Christ. They have new desires. They have new wants. They have, they have a new agenda. It's not about us anymore. It's about what? Pleasing Christ. See, the Sermon on the Mount goes way beyond the Law of Moses. You know, the Law of Moses was given to show our need of salvation. Well, the Sermon on the Mount even takes that further. It goes way beyond the Law of Moses. You know, you hear the Law of Moses about, you know, what do you think about when you think of the Law? You think about doing this, doing that, not doing this, you know, the, the Ten you know, Commandments, all this stuff. And, you know, it conjures up kind of a negative attitude. That's not really getting at the attitude of being obedient you, know, you can look at the law and say, okay, I'm not going to cuss. And you can hunker down in your flesh and say, I'm not going to cuss today. I'm not going to cuss. And you go through the day and you don't cuss. Or maybe there's another behavior in your life that's not pleasing to God. You can, you can in your flesh, just say, I don't want to do this. And for a period of time, you could be successful at it. But that's not getting at the attitude. It's just dealing with the action. And the Sermon on the Mount takes us way beyond the action to say, why are we doing the action? Why would we ever do that? Why would we want to do that? And it gets at our attitude. The Sermon on the Mount goes way beyond the Mosaic law to show us that we can't live one day in a blessed condition apart from new birth in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. If you try to do what the Sermon on the Mount tells us to do here in the Beatitudes, you'd probably lose your mind before you could do it. It's the opposite of what the world tells us to do. It's the greatest thing in the New Testament to show man's desperate need and situation that he's in without God. It's not just the acts of obeying the law. It's the attitude behind the action. That's what God's concerned about. You look at some of these things in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who wants to be poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time you woke up and said, Man, I hope somebody passes away so I can have a good morning today. Just in the the mood just to get down and get mourning. I just want to mourn, mourn, mourn. We don't think that way. Blessed are those that are meek. When's the last time you took your little Boy, your little girl, your little granddaughter, your grandchild, grandson took him and said, okay, now I want you to grow up and be meek. I want you to be very meek, Mason. Meek Mason, that's what I'm going to call you. just want you to be meek. Well, from the world's perspective, that's that's weird. What does that really mean? That's what we're going to be looking into. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We don't think of those things naturally as being blessed. When the bank account's full and the mortgage is paid off and everything's going fine, then we're blessed. But when the troubles come and the trials come and everything, then it's not so easy to say, man, I'm blessed. When's the last time you were going through a trial and said, you know what? This trial, I don't know how this is going to work, but somehow God is going to use this to bless me. I'm excited about this trial. We don't think about things that way. But we should. The Sermon on the Mount shows us our absolute necessity of the new birth. Secondly, it clearly points to Jesus Christ. It's perhaps the single greatest insight into the mind of Jesus Christ that we have in all Scripture. If you want to know how Jesus thinks, read His sermon. If you want to know what makes His heart beat faster, read His sermon. If you want to know what He feels about social things and livings and standards of life and all that stuff, read His sermon. It's right there for us. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of Christ. We ought to also study the Sermon on the Mount because it's the only way to blessedness or happiness for Christians. If you want to be happy, if you want to really be filled with the Spirit, you don't go out seeking some worldly mystical experience saying, oh, okay, this is going to make me feel better. You don't go chase some elusive dream that's never going to happen. Or go around popping from eating here and there trying to, you know, catch whatever's out there. If you want to know true happiness and blessedness and the bliss and the joy and the, the 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 just the incredible gladness that we have in Christ, study the Sermon on the Mount. And then put it into practice. Fourthly, I think we ought to study the Sermon on the Mount because it's one of the best means of evangelism. It's one of the best means of evangelism. You say, what do you mean? If you actually live out what the Sermon on the Mount tells us to live out, it'll transform your world. (laughs) It's the greatest tool of evangelism there is to live the kind of life that He talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible does say that they'll know us by our what? By our love, right? By our our living and, and, and by our attitude and all those things, but mainly our love. We need to remember that by living out these, these, this blessed sermon that's before us, it, it really could transform lives of the people that you come into contact with on a daily basis. Why? Because they're going to look at you and you're going to be so opposite of what the world is throwing in their face, they're going to want to know more. They're just going to want to know more. and fifthly there we should study the sermon on the mount because it pleases god because it pleases god i mean isn't it incredible incredible that we sinful steve could somehow please could bless god that god has allowed that conduit to to allow that blessing to happen that we could actually bless our creator By living out, by studying His Word. Well, what's the occasion here? Why, you know, what's going on here when He actually began this? Well, it says there in verse 1 that Jesus seeing the multitudes, seeing the multitudes, basically, that's Greek for a lot of people, okay? A lot of people. And it seems as you trace the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, He always cared for the multitudes. That's where His thrust was. In Matthew 9.36, turn over there, it says that He dealt with the multitudes. But when He saw the what? The multitudes, He was moved with compassion. In Matthew 14.14, 14, And when Jesus went out and He saw what? A great multitude. He was moved with what? Compassion. Matthew 15.32 Now Jesus called His disciples to Himself and said, I have compassion on what? The multitudes. Jesus was drawn to the multitudes and he, He had compassion on them. And who made up this, this multitude of people? Well, it tells us in, in chapter 4, we already looked at this, uh, verses, uh, 23 to 25. It said he went about in the synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manners of sickness, all manner of disease among the people. His fame went out through all Syria and brought onto him, they brought unto him all the sick that were taken with different diseases and torments and those who were possessed with demons and those who were epileptics and those who had palsy and healed them. And there followed Him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and even beyond the Jordan. There's this mass of humanity coming from the north, from the south, from the east and the west, and they're coming to see who? Christ. And when he sees them, his heart is always broken. He, he always has compassion on them. Right? There's a lesson we need to learn. When we look at an unsaved world, do we have compassion on them? Or do we sit here in judgment, cross our hands or cross our chest? And, oh, how disgusting they are. I'm glad I'm not like them. They probably don't even go to church. Probably too drunk from the night before. Go on and on and on. Look at how they're raising their kids. That's disgusting. We should look at people like that and have compassion on them, like Christ had compassion on the people that were coming to him. When he saw them hungry, what did he do? He gave them food. And you know what? He goes even deeper than that. He sees a spiritual hunger in their hearts. And the deepest thing that, that is in Him is God reaching out to give them what they need. Not just physically, beloved, but spiritually. See, there's this wonderful attraction to Jesus Christ. Crowds just kind of surged after Him. And it wasn't the most, really the, the, even the nicest group of people. If you look at the, the, the people here that came to Him. The sick, the demon-possessed. I mean, when's the last time you were in a crowd like that? I've been in an A's game lately, I guess. But anyway, I mean, you know, you go to some of those games, you sit out there in the bleachers, and you see all sorts of weird things going on around you. The motley crew. It's just a a group of people, but Jesus doesn't sit there in judgment. He has compassion on these folks. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, the ritualists, the harlots... The publicans, the scholars, the illiterates, everybody. The degraded, the refined, the rich men, the beggars. All these group of people, they began to follow Jesus. They wanted to come to Christ. But there's some strange attractiveness in Jesus Christ, that knows nothing of class. It knows nothing of money. It, it's, it's so beautiful summed up in the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's what he said, that in Jesus Christ, there's neither male nor female, nor Jew nor Gentile, nor bond nor free, nor Greeks nor barbarians. You drop all that stuff at the door when you come to Christ. It doesn't matter. And then it says, He saw the multitude in verse 5 and he went up on a mountain he went up on a mountain now he saw the multitude there He goes up on the mountain it says when he was seated his disciples came to him so you see this context you see see the occasion The, the preacher is an incredible person Jesus Christ himself is the one who's actually preaching here and he didn't quote anybody it says that he taught as one having authority of his own he didn't have to quote somebody else to have authority for for a, a pastor or preacher who stands behind this pulpit to have any sort of form of authority they have to be quoting or preaching the word of god that's what we would believe if i get up here and say hey you know what i was up in 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 uh Oak Harbor this this week and God just laid this on my heart and and you know, so just close your Bibles, we'll put this away, and I have this poem that I wrote, and I just think that I would just kind of want to take it apart and look at it and share it with you this morning because I really think that this is going to bless you. You probably get up and walk out. Who cares? But when you open up the word of God, all of a sudden there's an authority to it. Well, Jesus spoke as one having his own authority, because he was God. They says, of whom they never said a man spoke like this man before. Incredible. I mean, could you imagine being there when Jesus is there and He gets up there and, and you're sitting there in the crowd and He starts to open His mouth and He begins to say these blessed things. got three points to His sermon. First point, citizens of the kingdom. Second point, the righteousness of the kingdom. Third point, the exhortation to enter the kingdom. 5, 6, and 7. It's incredible. Ezekiel 3 it says, I make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth. Thou shalt be dumb and not be to them a reprover. See, He had structure. He had power. He had a divine commission. God said those things to one of the Old Testament prophets. But later on, God came back to the same prophet in chapter 33 and he says now the hand of the Lord was upon thee in the evening my mouth was opened, and I was no more dumb and then the word of the Lord came on to me see our Lord Jesus Christ with all the power that he had with all the intellect that he had only God could have developed this sermon like no other sermon and it wasn't until God's appointed time that Jesus opened his mouth and delivered this incredible sermon it says he went up to a mountain there. Well, if you've ever been over there, maybe you're, you're going to go with us this fall when we go with, with, with David Hawking, Dr. David Hawking, but they say that this is not really a mountain, as we think of a mountain. It's more more like a slope, kind of a gentle hill. But here it says that it's a mountain. I don't think it was anything like a mountain until Jesus got on that slope and he spoke. That made it a mountain. That made it something of significance. Because of who he was. It wasn't until he gave his sermon on the mount that it actually even became a mountain. Because physically, it's really not a mountain. He had a way of kind of taking something very insignificant, like a grassy slope. (laughs) And when he ministered, he made it into a mountain. What was His style when He was teaching? It says He sat. He was seated. That's kind of interesting. Maybe we should get a chair up here or something. You know, in Calvary chapels, a lot of Calvary chapels, they sit on a stool. That's where they get this. Jesus sat when He taught. So you have to understand that when the traditions of the time... When the rabbi came into the synagogue, everything was, you know, kind of like our greeting time, going back and forth, and everybody's talking or whatever. But when the rabbi came up and he sat down, it was like, oh, okay, it's time. It added authority, it added kind of a, just an atmosphere of, okay, something's going to be said right now. We need to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> because the teacher's sitting down. This is official. And we believe that even today. When you when you go to a university and, and if you head up a department, what do they call it? They call it chairing the what? Department. If you're a professor, you have a chair. Well, you don't literally have a chair, but that's what they call it. It's a base of authority upon which you teach. Even in the Catholic Church, when the, the Pope speaks, they, they say that he speaks ex-cathedral. What does that mean? It means from his seat, from his chair. See, when a man sat down to teach, it was authoritative. It was official. And so Jesus here wasn't just, you know, okay, class, time to get started. Let's see. What do I want to teach on today? I don't know. Blessed are those. No. This was was a, a sermon that's been crafted in eternity past. And now was the time for him to open his mouth and share and that's what it says there he opened his mouth it's really interesting in the original language because it's used of a solemn grave dignified serious weighty statement it's not just something off the cuff this is something that's very solid in his teaching says he opened his mouth in some extra-biblical reference, it's used to speak of somebody who really shares his heart intimately. And it has kind of an officialness to it, a solemnness. It's serious, dignified, and yet it was still from his heart. Well, who's hearing this sermon? It says there in, in verse 1, his disciples came to him. You see, they're the primary target of this sermon. Do you understand that? The multitudes, they don't even know Christ. They can't do what Jesus is telling them to do. They can't say, oh yeah, okay, I'll be blessed and in, 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 uh, poor in spirit and, and mourn and all. They can't do that. Remember, this sermon is for those who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible to receive any blessing from this until you've crossed that line. Until you've committed yourself. They're the only ones that could live out what he's telling them. So they're the, the primary target. The secondary target are those who are kind of gathered around there. There's an Archbishop McGee in England, and he once said this that it is impossible to conduct the affairs of the English nation on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the reason he gave because the nation was not loyal to the king. So you can't live out the Sermon on the Mount unless you know the King. And many people try to take this portion of Scripture and it's beautiful words and they turn it into kind of a social gospel. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's about at all. Jesus Christ with these words really transformed history. He really did. A well-known historian named Durant and he said this in any generation there may be eight or ten persons who will be alive in the sense of continuing influence 300 years after for, for instance he says Plato still is Socrates still is but in all of Western civilization and this guy's not a Christian he says the person who stands out above all others is Christ he undoubtedly Was the most permanent influence on the thoughts, on our thoughts, but not on our actions. And that's an important modification. Our actions are very seldom Christian, but our theology often is. We wish we could behave like Christ. And basically what he's saying is you can't live out the Sermon on the Mount. The teachings are great, but you just can't make them work. Well, you know what? He's right. If you don't know Christ, if you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you, it's impossible. Because you're not a partaker of the divine nature. There's no source, resource for you to tap into there. So Jesus taught His disciples because they alone could live it out. That's who He's addressing here. Everybody else is just kind of, you know, lettuce on the plate. You know, just kind of trimmings. They're just there. And you know what? The interesting thing is you and I who know the same Christ, just as He was there with them then, He's with us now. We can know the same blessedness that He's speaking of. And you look at verses 3-12 to and over and over He says, blessed, blessed, blessed. I really believe by the time we're done with this series on the Sermon on the Mount, that if you ask God to change you in a way He's never changed you before, He'll do it through these words. I believe our church could be different by the time we get through with this if we're obedient to what it says. I, see, I don't believe that you can just open this book and study it just for the sake of studying and close it. It has no effect. It has no change on your life. It's a living Word of God. That's why whenever someone comes to me and says, you know, I want to know more about Christ. I want to know more about being a Christian. What do I do? First thing I tell them is, you know what? Go to the book of John. Go to First John. Go to a book of the Bible that you can understand. Open it up and ask God to reveal Himself to you personally through His Word. And He'll do it. I don't just take that person, oh, you've got to say this prayer. (laughs) I say, you ask God to reveal Himself to you. He's perfectly capable of doing it if you're sincere in your heart. That's a prayer He'll answer. He'll change you in a way that you've never been changed before. But we really need to stop and commit ourselves to being the kind of people that God wants us to be. Not the kind of people that the world wants us to be. Very clear. And we have that capacity to live these things out as we, as we read through them. As we study them out. Because if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be the reality in your life. The Holy Spirit carrying out His will, His desires through you. As we prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning, I want us to ask ourselves this question. Are we serious about our faith? I mean, are we serious about this thing we call faith? This this thing we call Christian living? Or is it just lettuce on the plate of life somewhere, arranged nicely? (laughs) Or is it the main course? Beloved, if you're sincere about your relationship with Christ, then you'll desire to do what He commands us to do. Because that will bless Him. And we'll be blessed as a result. Let's close this portion of our service in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You this morning. And Lord, we look forward to the coming weeks as we begin to unravel what You have to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we thank You for bringing us this far in our own hearts, this place in our hearts where our hearts are open and we're ready to receive it. But Lord, we know that the only folks that can really receive a blessing in these teachings and this portion of Scripture are those that know You in a personal way. Father, I pray that if there's any here this morning who don't know You, who have yet to put their faith their trust in Christ, Lord, that You would transform their life. Lord, catch them by surprise. Lord, I pray that You would open their eyes to the glorious gospel of Christ. Help them to understand that it's not about them. It's not about their past. But it's about their future in Christ. It's about understanding the grace that You have for them. The love that You have for them. The sacrifice that Your Son has made for them. And then making it personal. Lord, I pray today that it's never too late to cry out to God, be merciful to me a sinner. Save me, Lord. I need help. He'll do that. Pray you prepare our hearts for our communion time together. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that's impure, Lord, we first thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. But Lord, we also want to confess it to you. Just in the quietness of this moment, just confess it to the Lord. Just basically saying you're sorry. But whatever it is, ask Him to fill you afresh with His Spirit. And allow you to live a life It's worthy of the calling that you received. Thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus' name.